Hello, and welcome to AJC Passport, brought to you by AJC, the diplomatic arm of the Jewish community. Each week, we'll chat with experts from around the world to help you better understand the week's headlines and what they all mean for Israel and the Jewish people. I'm your host, Sefi Kogan. Jason Isaacson is AJC's Chief Policy and Political Affairs Officer. He joins us in studio now. Jason, you had an interesting Monday. Why don't you tell us about that? Oh, thanks, Sefi. Uh, It was interesting. I was on a panel in the Department of Justice in an all-day program entitled Summit on Combating Anti-Semitism. It was from 8.30, 9 o'clock in the morning until 5 o'clock in the evening. Uh, Several panels, uh, several presentations by cabinet secretaries, um, a very important address by the Attorney General, William Barr. Um, experts from academia, from uh, not other organizations such as ours. We were the only uh, mainstream Jewish organization that was represented uh, on these panels, from scholars and experts and government officials, uh, including Elon Carr, the new special envoy to combat anti-Semitism, speaking about the subject, speaking about the the threat to uh, our community, the threat to civil society, um, what's going on on college campuses, um, what's going on in, in general society, in the media, and how to combat it. And I was able to speak about the various sources of anti-Semitism that we've identified uh, from the far right, from the far left, from those who are following a perverted interpretation of Islam, and how confronting anti-Semitism does not have to trample on the First Amendment. You can have free speech, you can criticize, you can make various comments. There are lines you cannot cross. But action against anti-Semitism, combating anti-Semitism, whether on the campus or whether in the media, including social media, uh, does not have to represent a violation of free speech. Mm -hmm. And that was an important distinction that uh, several of us on the panel tried to to get across. Mm -hmm. Jason, I I noticed you said that there were cabinet secretaries there in the plural. Um, You spend a lot more time around Washington than I do. But to my knowledge, it's not that frequent that you have an event that's attended or addressed by multiple cabinet Secretary. Highly infrequent. So why don't you tell us about that? You know, did that make this event special? First of all, which secretaries were there? Is that as significant as it seems? And what did they have to say? Quite significant. Um, I don't believe, certainly not in the years that I've been in Washington, which is a long time now, um, working on Capitol Hill, working for AJC, that I've ever seen an all-day program organized by a department of uh, the United States government focusing on the subject of anti-Semitism hmm. and combating anti-Semitism. The fact that the Secretary of Treasury, the Secretary of Education, along with, of course, the Attorney General, Um, would devote time to this subject uh, was very significant. The address by Elon Carr was very significant. I've heard the special envoy on many occasions. The government is taking this seriously. The fact that this government is taking this seriously is very significant. And by the way, I have to say, that was Monday. Um, The following three days, the State Department was organizing and conducting a a seminar. They called that a ministerial, a ministerial on advancing religious freedom. Hmm. Um, the second time. They, they had done this last summer as well. So for three days, you had panel discussions as well on various forms of protecting religious freedom, including the, the fight against anti-Semitism. And we had colleagues of ours uh, from AJC, uh, Rabbi Andrew Baker, Rabbi Noah Marins, on various panels in the course of the three-day State Department program as well. So it's a major focus of the U.S. government uh, in, in this week and a, and a welcome focus. Hmm. Um, I noticed that there was a lot of discussion around it about you know, quote, unquote, the new anti-Semitism, which generally means uh, 
left-wing anti-Semitism. Was there sufficient focus, do you think, on the old anti-Semitism? I I was glad that AJC was able to weigh in on the subject and speak about the various sources and forms of anti-Semitism and make it clear that, um, of course, the anti-Semitism that we have seen um, historically from the far right has its counterpart to some degree in uh, anti-Semitic comments, anti-Semitic sentiments on the far left as well in our country and abroad, um, as well as the religious source as well that I cited. I emphasize the fact that in the last nine months, um, attacks, murderous attacks on Jews in the United States have come from people who um, adhere to extremist white supremacist uh, ideologies. Um, But the sources uh, have to be identified without discrimination against any ideology. You have to be able to clearly say where it comes from and combat it where it comes from. I think that our statement was able to do that. Uh, I think not all focused uh, as broadly or as pointedly as they might have on that particular source, which has caused the attacks that we've seen in, in our country. From AJC's perspective, obviously, it's nice to be invited places, but we played a really important role. It sounds like you played a really important role, Jason, in drawing attention to one of the three streams of anti-Semitism that otherwise might have been kind of missed. I think it, I think it was important to point it out. Um, by the way, if I may, Sefiel, I also have to point out that uh, Dan Elbaum, AJC's chief advocacy officer, um, played a really key role in preparing the testimony that I was able to work on um, and deliver. Um, I have, we have colleagues in this organization, uh, not only um, at the leadership level of the organization, but in all of our regional offices, um, real expertise on the subject of anti-Semitism and activists who are working with uh, other constituencies to combat this, uh, this, this virus. I'm going to quote from your prepared remarks. Uh, One of the things you said was, quote, here at home after the events of the last year from Pittsburgh to Poway to rhetoric from some elected leaders. No, it's not 1939, but it is 2019. And that is cause enough for concern. What did you mean by that? Uh, Poway occurred in 2019. um, And abroad, we have seen attacks on Jews and across this country, uh, whether it's uh, instances of uh, graffiti sprayed on uh, synagogues or um, uh, vicious things that are said either by elected officials or um, people in uh, in various communities. Um, The virus has not ceased. Uh, It continues to attack our country. It continues to attack our community um, here and abroad. So you do not have a government anywhere that is um, building factories to kill Jews. Uh, What you have is individuals who are forgetting the lessons of history and are adopting old conspiracy theories and old distorted ways of looking at our community and buying into uh, propaganda that has uh, been discredited but still survives. And that has to be called out and it has to be um, it has to be confronted. Yeah, I I love the way you put that. I think there's this really kind of um, navel gazing fixation that many in the Jewish community have with saying, well, you know, is it 1939? You know, meaning, obviously, are are we on the precipice of a second Holocaust? Um, It doesn't have to be 1939 in order for there to be a problem. Um, And and I think that that's a really important point. And I'm glad that you made it. And if I may also say, our government is taking a very active role in confronting this and identifying it and confronting it. And and the fact that our government is doing that and it's and, and by appointing 
now appointing several different uh, times over the last uh, 15 years a special envoy to combat anti-Semitism to work with other countries, to push other countries to also confront this. Uh, it's an entirely different context than what we had in the 1930s. We now have serious governmental action, institutions created to combat anti-Semitism uh, instead of appeasing anti-Semitism, uh, turning away from anti-Semitism or also rejecting people who are fleeing anti-Semitism. It's an entirely different context. Mm-hmm. Let me turn to a, a difficult question now. Um, do we have any reservations, Jason, about the Trump administration undertaking this effort? You know, I, I haven't lined up the timeline exactly, but roughly around when you were talking at DOJ about anti-Semitism, President Trump was tweeting some pretty ugly racial slurs at four members of Congress. How do we at AJC deal with that dissonance? This administration poses unique challenges. Um, it has taken very bold steps in important areas to the Jewish community. Uh, its defense of Israel has been outstanding. Its identification of anti-Semitism as uh, a major problem that requires additional government attention and resources uh, has been outstanding, um, especially in recent months uh, after the appointment of a new special envoy. It took a couple of years to appoint a special envoy, but they picked a good one, and, uh, and the work has been extraordinary. Uh, the level of activity has been extraordinary. Um, on other issues uh, that relate to the well-being of society, the the health of our country, uh, the maintenance of the fabric of our pluralistic society, um, uh, this uh, administration has fallen short, um, and it, uh, it 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 starts at the top. I must point out that the attorney general, in opening this conference, talked about our society and about maintaining the pluralist fabric of our society, and defending that in a way that was a counterpoint to the the tweets that were issued by the president over the weekend. Um, it was a welcome series of remarks by the attorney general that um, defended the values that, that we defend. Um, so you have different voices coming from the administration. Uh, we called out the president's comments and others did as well. Um, there is an ugly strain in American politics of um, – uh, attacking people, of dividing the country, of, um, of, of scapegoating. We've identified it. Um, we've tried as hard as possible not to personalize it. We've also understood that there are many actions and statements made by public officials, and we can praise those that uh, comport with our values and our interests and criticize those that don't. And I think that we've been able to do it in a way that has uh, been responsible and has earned us respect to the point that we were invited to participate in a discussion organized by the Justice Department um, after criticizing actions by the Justice Department and by the government on immigration issues and on a range of things, and also praising the government on issues relating to Israel and um, uh, other national interests that the United States has, uh, has, has stood for, that this administration has stood for. I think we can discriminate and call out statements and actions that offend our values, that offend American values, and that jeopardize American interests, uh, and at the same time praise administration actions and statements that uh, are in pursuit of those interests and values. Is this the most divisive, divided time that that you've seen in, in Washington? Without question. Well, on behalf of myself and the rest of us here at AJC, Jason, I'm glad that uh, we have you and and your diligent, hardworking, empathetic, thoughtful, brilliant team hard at work on these issues down in Washington and, and working to uh, to bring our country together. Well, thank you, Sefi. You play a key role in uh, helping to keep us uh, together and also getting the word out about the work that we're trying to do. So thank you for your involvement in that and your uh, your counsel as well.
Ty Gregory is the executive director of A Wider Bridge, a North American organization working to create equality in Israel by expanding LGBT inclusion in the Jewish state and equality for Israel by ensuring fair treatment for the country in LGBT communities around the world. He joins us now to discuss some recent unsettling news. Ty, thank you for joining us. It's my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Over the weekend, Israeli Education Minister Rabbi Rafi Peretz said in an interview that he believes the highly controversial practice called gay conversion therapy is effective. For our listeners who don't know, can you explain the idea behind gay conversion therapy and why this is a problematic belief for Israel's education minister to hold? Yeah, this is a really reprehensible remark on his part. Gay conversion therapy is this idea that largely stems from old school psychological movements and religious movements that says that we can take someone's sexuality and turn it straight. And that has since been widely disproven, and it's shown to lead to harm in the people that are continuing to go through it, rates of suicide spike, drug use, depression, it's a very harmful practice that unfortunately still exists today. Well, Peretz, uh, Minister Peretz received a lot of backlash uh, for those comments. Actually, the Education Administration of Tel Aviv published a letter signed by 72 elementary school principals in the secular, religious, Arab, and special education school systems, uh, accusing Minister Peretz of expressing a position that was, quote, exclusionary, discriminatory, racist, and expressed hatred of others. Is that criticism appropriate? Is it too strong? Is it not strong enough? It's very appropriate. One of our grantees is Hoshin, which is the education LGBT organization in Israel. And they go into schools to work on LGBT visibility and curriculum to make sure that uh, Israeli students in public schools have access to an understanding of LGBT issues in their community. And to have the head of that ministry Hmm. demonizing LGBTQ people, especially youth that are predominantly those that are going through these conversion therapy practices is reprehensible. So I I would commend those who signed on to that letter for their important pushback. Mm -hmm. So now that we've laid all this out, um, actually, since the initial interview, Minister Peretz has now come out against gay conversion therapy. And he said, quote, I know that conversion therapy is illegitimate and severe. This is my unambiguous position. Okay, so there was a little bit of ambiguity. He says it's unambiguous, but fine. Um, Now he's come out on the right side of the issue. Is that mea culpa enough? Or should we want to see more from him? Well, maybe we can get into this later in the interview, but there's another set of comments that he made the previous week about Jews in the diaspora intermarrying being a second holocaust, which is equally inappropriate, if not more so. Um, So I think he has a long way to go to demonstrate that he belongs as the minister of education in Israel. But in terms of this particular issue, it's a good starting point, and it proves that LGBT causes in Israel are a rallying point for Israeli society. This is such a divided society, much like our own, and there's very few issues that the general public can rally around. And polls show that 78% of Israelis support same-sex marriage, including, by the way, a plurality of traditional and religious Israelis. 
So I think that it shows that there still is movement that is capable in Israeli society, and the LGBT cause is a really important one today, even in this frictious, divided country that we all care about as they head back to elections in September. Mm-hmm. Um, no doubt you're correct that there are other challenges for groups like ours in trying to help uh, Minister Peretz see the offensive nature of several of his remarks, not only the one about gay conversion therapy, but also um, the one you brought up about referring to intermarriage as a second Holocaust. You're certainly correct about that. Since you mentioned um, same-sex marriage in Israel, I would hazard to guess that not all of our listeners are intimately familiar with kind of the state of play around uh, LGBT marriage in Israel. Can you kind of just fill in for people uh, what that looks like if you're a gay person in Israel who wants to get married? Absolutely. So in Israel, you can't go to City Hall and get a marriage license. The only way to get married is through the religious authorities. So if you're Jewish, you go to the Orthodox rabbi that is sanctioned to perform marriages. If you're Muslim, you go to the imam. If you're Christian, you go to the priest. You have to do it through a religious figure. And that's the system that has existed in Israel since 1948. In fact, it was around during the British Mandate. Mm -hmm. And before that, that was the system that the Ottoman Empire set up before the British Mandate started. So this is a longstanding system that existed for more than 100 years. And that's the way that Israeli society has been structured. And it's only been recently as people not only in the LGBT space, but beyond that are marrying across faiths or, frankly, in the reform movements or people that just want to have a marriage license done in a secular way. They don't have those capabilities. So unlike in the U.S., where we can go to San Francisco or New York or D.C. City Hall to get a license, there's only one entry point. So it's not only an LGBT issue, it's a civil marriage issue. And the only way that it's going to change is if all of the groups that are currently disaffected by the status quo start working together. And so the main challenge from the LGBT community's perspective in Israel is some of those other constituencies are not yet entirely on board with the LGBT cause, in particular, the Russian immigrant community that has made Aliyah over the past couple decades. There's still a great deal of homophobia in some of the Russian-Israeli immigrant community who are also facing an issue around getting married themselves because some of them can't prove their Jewishness to the Orthodox rabbis that would be able to marry Mm -hmm. them. So right now, it's, it's really about coalition building in Israel because approximately one out of every eight Israelis can't get married in their current system. The main change, though, is that uh, several gay couples went to the Israeli Supreme Court to say, I want to have my marriage recognized that was performed abroad. So now Israelis, gay and straight, who want a civil marriage can go get their certificate in countries that will marry two non-citizens, bring it back, and Israel will now have to recognize them as married under the law. You know, Jews are good at finding loopholes. So that is currently the state of the play today. Um, that's really interesting, the way that you kind of um, laid out the different folks who may be kind of pro or anti-changing the, the mm-hmm. status quo around this issue. You know, earlier this summer on AJC Passport on this podcast, uh, we mentioned the pride parades in Israel. But as you say, not everyone in Israel is happy about the country being such a, a generally accepting place for LGBT people, even if there are still strides to be made when it comes to gay marriage. One set of unhappy people is the ultra-Orthodox, people religiously to the right of Minister Peretz, and we kind of touched on that a little bit. Uh, But the other group, uh, surprisingly, is actually to the left. Can you tell us a little bit about the charge of pinkwashing? Sure. So as you mentioned on the right, there certainly are closed Orthodox spaces for LGBT people. 
And two of the organizations that we support are Bat Kol and Havruta, the Gay Orthodox mm. Men's Organization yeah. and the Queer Orthodox Women's Organization. Mm-hmm. And they're the ones at the forefront on the frontier of, of changing attitudes in spaces that were once seemed impossible through visibility campaign and working with Orthodox rabbis. On the flip side, we do have some challenges from, from the left uh, in the U.S. And, and in Europe in particular, with folks accusing the Israeli LGBT community of covering up the conflicts, what they perceive to be war crimes or or bad behavior by the the state of Israel on the conflict. And to that we say, where's the beef? You know, Mm -hmm. LGBT Israelis have been fighting for their rights, most often against the government or taking their, their case to the Supreme Court to win their rights over decades and decades. And the reason we think that this charge of pinkwashing is a false argument is because it's incredibly disrespectful towards those folks who had to fight for their rights, who went through the AIDS crisis, who went through, you know, being kicked out of their families and their homes to get to this point today. So, you know, Tel Aviv Pride is sort of the epicenter of this. And yes, it's incredibly open and it's one of my favorite events of the year, (laughs) but it's really about celebrating how far we've come. Um, And those accusing of the Israeli community of pinkwashing are totally sweeping that under the rug. And we think that that really does damage to to the cause that is yet in front of us to continue to achieve equality. This tension is kind of reflected in the mission of your organization, uh, A Wider mm. Bridge, uh, as well, right? You you talk about equality in Israel and equality for Israel, right? That folks in Israel, regardless of their sexual orientation or gender identity, should have full equality, but also that Israel should be treated equally in, in LGBTQ communities around the world and countries around the world. Would you say that one of those challenges is harder today than the other? Oh, I think that they're both fundamental challenges (laughs) that need to be solved. And some people ask us, why do you have two missions as an organization? And I say, we can't advance LGBT rights in Israel if the American and European LGBT communities want to boycott the Israeli LGBT cause. You know, we our communities are stronger if we work together. And if our Israeli friends don't have access to resources and collaboration with LGBT causes internationally, it's going to be really tough. Um, And we also can't you know, talk about Israel and advance acceptance of Israel in the LGBT space if we're not authentic about caring about the LGBT community, which is why we advocate for LGBT issues like this education minister issue and why we make grants to eight different LGBT Israeli causes. If we're going to have a serious conversation with the American LGBT community about Israel, we need to be committed to the fight for LGBT equality ourselves. That, that's about our authenticity in the conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, just uh, one, one final topic I wanted to pick your expertise about. Famously, a couple months ago, Prime Minister Netanyahu appointed Amir Ohana to be Israel's justice minister. Yeah. Minister Ohana is a, a member of the Likud party of Prime Minister Netanyahu's right-wing party. He happens to be Israel's first gay minister. Um, it's interesting because, you know, this is the equivalent of a, you know, gay Republican cabinet secretary in, in the U.S., um, something that has never happened, not only we not had a gay Republican cabinet secretary. I don't think we've had a gay Democratic cabinet secretary. Um, so, <laughs> as far so, as we know. <laughs> that's a good point. So, you know, there are kind of twin impulses here, right? I saw a number of people on social media, for example, celebrating this as, you know, a, a great thing, a great stride for Israeli society, um, that there was a gay person in this role. On the other hand, I also saw a lot of people coming from the left, generally not kind of the, the pinkwashing left, but, you know, the Zionist left saying, 
saying, well, hold on a sec. We don't actually like Amir Khanna's policies. So, you know, we're, we're not happy that there's a gay justice minister in Israel. I'm curious, yeah. you know, Ty, where do you fall out on that? So we don't take positions on different political parties in Israel, but I, I think you laid out a pretty good case of the situation. On one hand, yes, the vast majority of the LGBT activists that we partner with would identify with the Israeli center or left, um, the, the Merits Party, the Labor Party, and the Blue and White Party, ranging from the left to the center left, are all really where the heart of the LGBT causes. That said, Likud does have an LGBT caucus. It's one of the parties that has a committed group of LGBT activists within the party. And Amir Ohana was one of those caucus leaders before he was elected to the Knesset. Mm. Um, he comes under immense criticism for some of his political decisions from some of the mainstream activists. Uh, but the important counter questions that I would ask those people is, who do you think was more likely to have the conversation with the education minister that led him to walk back his comments, someone in Meretz or, or Amir Ohana. Mm. You know, he serves an important purpose dealing with some of the other coalition partners that have this historic bent towards opposing the LGBT cause. The other thing that's important to know is there's a lot of resources, a lot of shekels that come from the ministries of health and the ministries of education. And having him on the inside to have those discussions is a very different place to be in coalition politics in the parliamentary system. You know, you want to be on the inside versus in the opposition to have that conversation about how resources are spent. And, and certainly there are millions of shekels going to some of our partner organizations in the LGBT community. There could be a lot more. But, you know, so in my opinion, it's important that he's there, but we do recognize the criticism in terms of his policies on other important issues around social justice and the conflict. Well, Ty, thank you so much for joining us on AJC Passport and for sharing your expertise with us today. It's my pleasure. Thanks again for having me. Now it's time for our closing segment, Good for the Jews, where each week I share one final thought about a recent development in the world and try to answer that age-old question. Is it good for the Jews? Greece. Good for the Jews? We're not going to get into ancient history here, okay? Let's leave the Hasmoneans and the Maccabees and Alexander the Great out of it. But let's start in the 1980s when AJC first began engaging with Greece, which at the time had no formal relationship with Israel. It was only in the early 1990s, after years of steady AJC diplomacy, that Greece became one of the last countries in Western Europe to extend diplomatic ties to Israel. But the story of Greece and Israel doesn't end there. Instead, AJC has been credited with architecting a vision of an Eastern Mediterranean community patterned on that of the EU that consists of, for starters, Israel, Greece, Cyprus, Jordan, and Egypt, with Albania and Bulgaria right next door. These countries are united by proximity, sure, but also by the opportunity to collaborate on energy and electricity and by the need to face the challenges created by the region's bad actors like Iran, Hezbollah, and Turkey. AJC was in Greece and Albania last week, where the delegation met with the prime ministers of both countries, including a meeting with the new prime minister of Greece, Kyriakos Mitsotakis, on his very first day in office. Just as the European Union was born out of a desire among former foes to cooperate on steel and coal, so too could the natural gas beneath the floor of the Mediterranean Sea be the fuel for a once unthinkable Eastern Med Alliance, 
the role that Greece plays in the story means that it is good for the Jews. You can subscribe to AJC Passport on iTunes or on Stitcher. Follow us on SoundCloud or learn more at AJC.org passport. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at passport at AJC.org. If you like this podcast, be sure to rate it and write a review to help more listeners find us. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Sefi Kogan. This episode is brought to you by AJC, the American Jewish Committee. Our producer is Kukang Do. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. Tune in next week for another episode of AJC Passport.